Now we're going to return to verse 16 of chapter 2, where the Apostle writes, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. We began last time uh, talking about the style of this language and the origin, and we agreed that it appears to be Jewish in background. And we looked at the word festivals and did some preliminary work on Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, noting that that language was not uh, permanent, that it was ceremonial, ritual, and symbolic. Now we want to return to this verse and look at the other language that is here and present the same questions What about the type of language that is being represented here? Uh, Is this ceremonial, ritual, and symbolic language, or is it permanent, lasting, and eternal language? So let's begin with the word food and ask you, Uh, what may be in the Apostle's mind when he talks about judging with respect to food. The distinction between clean and unclean? Very good, Ben. Yes, that's exactly what he probably has in mind. We say probably because he doesn't say any more, but uh, let's take a look at the classic text. So let's turn back to chapter 11 of the book of Leviticus and We're going to work out of uh, these books of the Pentateuch for a while and discussing some of these issues. So food is perhaps the clean and unclean beasts matter. And in chapter 11, you'll notice that Moses and the Lord reveals the categories of those distinctions He moves from the animals in verses 1 to 8, or the beasts, to the water creatures in verses 9 through 12, and then slides over to the birds of the air, verses 13 to 19, and concludes with the insects, or sometimes expressed the swarming creatures, verses 20 to 23. Now, uh, he gives a summary of this whole chapter at the end of it in verses 46 and 47. So if you turn to verse 46 of Leviticus 11, you'll notice the summary or concluding statement which covers the whole chapter. This is the law regarding the animal and the bird and every living thing that moves in the waters and everything that swarms on the earth to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the edible creature and the creature which is not to be eaten. All right, now why this distinction? A distinction which looks fairly arbitrary as we examine these categories, but we realize it is not because the Lord does not do anything that is arbitrary. So what is behind this? Well, actually, the context The context of this chapter indicates what is behind it. And if you glance up to verses 44 and 45 of this 11th chapter, 
you'll notice that within the context of issuing this uh, <clears throat> revelation and summing up this revelation, the Lord indicates the purpose of the revelation. For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. All right, now, the clean and unclean distinctions have something to do with the holiness of God. What do we mean when we say God is holy? We mean he is distinguished from that which is unclean. He is perfectly clean. He is distinguished from that which is sinful. He is perfectly sinless. The Hebrew word holy refers to being set apart. God himself is set apart from all uncleanness. He is set apart from all sinfulness. And so he gives to the children of Israel a daily audio-visual illustration of a reminder about his pristine holiness. So that when they hear with their ears the oinking of the pig, they will know that that is an unclean beast, and they are to remember that God himself is different from that which is unclean. When they see the cow chewing its cud, they are to remind it that it is a clean beast. In other words, it is acceptable in God's presence. It can bring a bullock into the tabernacle or the temple of the Lord and offer it up as a whole burnt offering. You do not do that with a pig. All right, so behind these clean and unclean distinctions is the larger issue of being reminded, thinking about, remembering, meditating on the holiness of God. And these animals remind them, call to mind this distinction. I am holy, so you are holy. So you put those aside. You separate yourselves from them. That's the, that's the style of your life, but based upon this, shall we say, infancy of the church, if we can use the term, that is, the church, when it needed these audiovisual illustrations, this uh, Im- imagery, this symbolism, this <clears throat> ritual pattern, which reminds them that even in their eating, they are to remember that God is holy and they are to reflect his Holiness set themselves apart from that which he has called unclean and unhealthy, etc. Now, as I've emphasized, these are audiovisual reminders of God's holiness. Keep in mind this is a visual element. It's also an oral element. That they hear with their ears the noise of these animals, the buzzing, etc., So God in his holiness is separate from sin, and Israel is to separate herself from consuming, touching, or bringing unclean animals, fish, birds, insects, and so forth into the presence of the Lord. That means into his tabernacle, into his temple, into his holy place. The unclean thing cannot come in, cannot be brought in. It is defiled. So the eye and ear of the Israelite is daily reminded of the holiness of God in remembering these clean and unclean distinctions. 
He's reminded of God's separation from sin and uncleanness by hearing and seeing the creatures around him set apart by clean and unclean differentiation. The Israelites' holiness is to be identified with God's own holiness. Be ye holy as I am holy. Reflect my holiness in making the distinctions that I have asked you to make for purposes of remembering my separation from sin and uncleanness. Now, would this daily reminder illustrated in the world of creatures ever be superseded? Would it ever cease? Would it come to an end when better things to come arrived? Would God ever announce that the clean and unclean creatures audiovisual was over? No longer necessary that a greater display of God's separation from sin would be displayed and displayed with audible sighs, groans, cries, as well as displayed to the eye in bloody dereliction and pierced suffocation. And when that final audio-visual occurred, all the clean and unclean laws, all God's displeasure with unholiness, all his separation from the stain of sin, all those former things would at last be finally accomplished in his Son. His dear, beloved, only begotten Son, who became unclean in his Father's sight vicariously, bearing the stain and blemish of sin in his own holy body. When Jesus became the embodiment of the unholy, unclean, stained and sinful thing vicariously, and yet emerged holy, pristine, unstained and sinless by resurrection, the point and purpose and time of the cleanliness laws was over. It is finished, they are done. I have accomplished them all. The audio-visual clean, unclean shadows drove us, drove the believing Israelite to the audio-visual incarnate Son of God who on our and their behalf, in our and their place, became unclean, was regarded as unholy, that he might be declared perfectly clean and sinless, perfectly holy and blameless in his resurrection for our sake. Food and drink ritual, ceremonial, symbolic laws have passed away. The reality and fullness of them has appeared in redemptive history in the Son of God, our Redeemer and vicarious Savior. He became unclean in God's sight, that we may be, be, be clean in God's sight. He became unholy, separated unto sin, that we may be holy, separated from sin. There is no unclean thing. There is no unclean thing in the place where Jesus is now. That beautiful city of God, that new Jerusalem, that holy 
an undefiled place in which there is no sin, nor blemish, nor stain of uncleanliness, that place thrice holy forever and ever and ever. And it is to that pristine, clean, and holy heavenly city that Jesus brings his holy people in his holiness. He brings his clean people in his perfect cleanliness. He brings his unstained people in his stainlessness. Revelation 21:27. Nothing unclean shall ever enter that city where Jesus is with the Father and the Spirit and all the holy angels and the glorified saints of God. Cleanliness, holiness comes to its eschatological completion in the incarnate, crucified, and risen Son of God in the heavenly Jerusalem where he sits in perfect holiness and cleanliness and purity world without end. These food laws were temporary. These food laws were ceremonial. These food laws were symbolic. They are all ultimately pointing to the holiness of God and to the pristine holiness of the incarnate Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. They were not intended to be permanent. They were not laws intended to be lasting. They were not laws intended to be eternal. They were to endure for the time of the Jewish economy. And when Jesus said, it is finished, that economy was finished, and so were these cleanliness laws in the process. Let no one judge you with respect to food. Now the next word is drink. What does the apostle have in mind when he says, let no man judge you with respect to drink? This is difficult. There is not enough context to be absolutely certain. But since we're dealing with Old Testament ceremonial ritual, the most reasonable explanation of what he means by drink here is contained in the famous Nazarite vow. That takes us back to Numbers chapter 6. And so will you turn with me to number 6 for a moment as we take a look at the content of the Nazarite vow. It is conceivable that there were some Jewish believers or Jewish intruders in the Colossian church who were advocating the avoidance of strong drink as a sign of necessary holiness to God. In other words, unless you were, shall we say, a teetotaler, you were not Holy, you were not as good as others. Now that is an implication that I am deducing from what is here is not explicit in the text and I admit that I may be way off base, but let's take a look at the Nazarite vow where we have a biblical foundation for making some remarks about this matter of drink. You'll notice in uh, Numbers chapter 6, that the Nazarite vow can be assumed by a male or a female. And of course, the most famous assumer or taker of the Nazarite vow in Scripture was Samson. Samson. Very good. 
Now, what does a Nazarite vow dedicate the individual to? Well, he dedicates himself to the Lord in verse 2. And he is to abstain from wine and strong drink and from every element of the fruit of the vine. Now, every element of the grape, even the skin and the seeds and the juice. All right, he is to separate himself from the grapevine and from its fruit. Then, in verse 5, he is not to let a razor pass over his head. He is not to shave his head. That is to be a sign of his holiness until the days are fulfilled. Now, notice once again the attachment of the word holy here to what the Nazarite vow is is indicating is symbolizing, is representing. We had holiness with respect to the clean and unclean food laws. Now we have holiness with respect to the Nazarite vow, one premise of which includes the separation from strong drink. In addition to not cutting his hair, he shall not make himself unclean by coming near to a dead person, verse 6. And finally, notice verse 8. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. That is, when he takes the vow and separates himself unto the Lord, it may be for a time of his life or for all of his life. But when he does so, he is holy unto the Lord and representing that as he is an example of, of, of this lifestyle before the assembly of Israel. We've got another audio-visual principle here, don't we? Every time you would see a Nazarite, he would be known or she would be known to be a Nazarite. Every time you would see the Nazarite in the exercise of his vow of separating himself out to the Lord, you would never see him with a, with a, a, a cup of wine in his hand. You would never see him picking grapes out of the vineyard. You would never see him eating grapes. <clears throat> you would never see him touch a dead carcass. You would never see him near a dead body, at least not near enough to touch it. And you would never see his hair shorn. You would never see his hair trimmed or cut. In other words, you would see the Nazarite and your eye would be reminded by what you saw that he was separated wholly unto the Lord. And therefore, you are reminded that you are to be holy and separated unto the Lord. Though you didn't take the Nazarite vow, nonetheless, you understand that holiness unto the Lord means separation from that which is defiling. Now, there's... There's the real key here, isn't it? That which is defiling. <clears throat> what it is? What is it about these uh, particular uh, indi- this pr- particulars of this vow, which is unholy, which is symbolically sinful? They all have something in common, and it comes from the last one. They all tend to death. What is fermentation except the process of microbial death producing strong alcohol? What is touching a body? That is a the process of putrefication. And what about the hair? That is a process of tonsorialization. Now, if you're not familiar with the term tonsorial, it's because you don't live in the 19th century anymore. You don't have a tonsorial parlor. 
What a tonsorial parlor is? A barber shop. Yes. <clears throat> so, tonsorialization is removing the hair as, in fact, is done when the vow is completed. And the hair, as you go through the rest of the sixth chapter, is shorn in, and, uh, in the tabernacle or brought to the tabernacle, and it is placed on the altar of burnt offering and consumed. So the hair is put to death, even as the carcass is a carcass which has been put to death or has died, even as the strong drink is produced by death inside the fermentation vat. <clears throat> the life of the Nazarite is a public display of the avoidance of death. And on the opposite, it is an affirmation of the pursuit of life in being separated unto God. Now, there's the real life, is it not? These three elements of this vow are all a way of showing that the Nazarite has separated himself or herself to the life of the Lord. To the Lord's life of being the Lord himself separated from that which tends unto death and uh, and uncleanness. All right, now, this vow, of course, has been canceled in the eschatological Nazarite. There is that mysterious verse at the end of Matthew chapter 2, and he shall be called a Nazarene, which some scholars think should be rendered, he shall be called a Nazarite. That's an interesting exegetical debate and that verse tantalizes everyone who looks at it because they don't know where Matthew is getting the basis or the background for that statement. It's one of the so so to, up to date, so to date, so to this date, it's one of the conundrums and insoluble mysteries of the New Testament. But that aside, whether or not Jesus was a uh, took the personal Nazarite vows or not. He, in effect, represents that, but he represents it in such a way as it does not contaminate him. He is not afraid of strong drink at the wedding of Cana. He is not afraid of touching dead bodies by raising up the, uh, the, uh, the, the Jairus' daughter. He is not afraid of, of, uh, uh, of, of having his hair shorn, uh, <coughs> Uh, though there's no evidence that he was shorn of his hair, but he certainly wouldn't have avoided it. All right, so the Nazarite vow, if it is in the back of the apostle's mind here with the word drink, the Nazarite vow was a ceremonial law. It was a ritual performance, a ritual rite. It was a symbolic demonstration of the distinction between life and death. And God is life, and not God is death. God is sinless, and not God is sinful. This is, this is the, shall we say, the lesson to be learned when you see the Nazarite in the, camp, the, camp, the company of the Israelites. All right, so food and drink here are both temporary, symbolic, and ceremonial ordinances. They were not intended to be permanent, lasting, 
and eternal ordinances. There was a time when they were going to come to an end and the accomplishment and fulfillment of them would occur supremely in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ for the Son of God accomplishes everything they indicated and does so wonderfully and victoriously. Now, the next word is festivals, which we discussed last time. We talked at the last meeting about Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles as ritual ceremonial festivals, symbolic of the fulfillment that was coming in Christ Jesus, who is the Passover Lamb of God, who is the first fruits of the Pentecostal harvest, who is the one in whom the tabernacles feast in John chapter 7 and 8 is accomplished. He is the source of living water. He is the light of the world. The festivals have found their fulfillment in Christ and are no longer binding upon the New Testament believer. Food and drink laws no longer binding upon New Testament believers. Randy, your hand, your hand is up. So in the Old Testament, if they did what some people do in modern times, cut locks of hair and save them, would that be a problem? No, it wouldn't. I mean, if it was a Nazarite, yes, it would have been a problem. But not not for a person not a Nazarite. Yes, Reba? Uh, true enough. Then when it's cut off, he's cut off from death. I mean, would that be... Well, it's possible, possible to see it that way. The fact that he is to, to, sh- to shear it and put it on the altar and burn it up, uh, <clears throat> that's the indication that it is tainted with the, with the shall we say, the symbolism of death. So he's removing it from himself to begin afresh, to begin anew. Any other questions? All right, now we move on to the next phrase, which is new moon. And here we're also in numbers, if you'll turn ahead to chapter 28 and get verse 11 of chapter 28. New moon, of course, is the first day of the month on the Jewish calendar. They used a lunar calendar, so there was some shifting in the dates and the events of their calendar, even as they understood that they needed extra days or extra units in order to accomplish the full cycle of 365 days. New moon in chapter 28 of Numbers, verse 11 indicates at the beginning of each of your months you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, that doesn't suggest anything about new moon, but if you turn over to chapter 29, you'll notice that the two verses go together. Chapter 29, verse 6, besides the burnt offering of the new moon and its grain offering. So there's the new moon explicitly labeled as such, and that's what is intended in chapter 28, verse 11. Every month, the beginning of every month, the Israelite was given a fresh start, so to speak. The new moon and its celebration, particularly with its offerings, 
was emblematic or symbolic of the eschatological new beginning in a world with no moon nor sun. In that world, behold, all things are new all the time. There are no new beginnings in that all new, all the time world. Everything in that world is permanent, lasting, an eternal condition of the eschatological and heavenly world. That world has come into history by way of revelation and has been entered into by way of incarnation and glorification by the person of the Son of God so that the new beginning that we receive, the fresh start that we receive, is in his glorification, in his being beyond the ritual and ceremony of new moons, etc. No more new moon celebration for those that belong to Jesus Christ. Why? Let's take a look at Isaiah 60, and let's see what the prophet says. In Isaiah chapter 60, the Lord, through the prophet in verse 19 and 20, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light. For you will have, notice what he says, the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane. For you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and the days of your mourning will be over. Here is a projection of what Revelation 21:23 says, and we'll read that one out. The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The new moon celebration then was a temporary ceremonial and symbolic ordinance which was intended to be superseded and canceled with the coming of the one who entered into the fullness of it. He brings the eschatological new beginning. He brings the eschatological new start. He brings the eschatological all things are new in him. And in that realm, in that arena, in that dimension where he sits, behold, there is no need to remember the fresh start each month by bringing offerings for the new moons, etc. Yes, Reba? Uh, well, in the sense that he is the creator of light, that nebular light, which is there apparently before the light bodies are placed in that nebular arena, uh, the, the, the source of light, being God the creator, uh, is a representation, or shall we say, a revelation of something which is greater, namely the light of his own glory, which is uncreated and eternal in his habitation and dwelling. 
All right, now, we come to the last word in the sequence here in verse 16 of Colossians 2, and that's the word Sabbath, sometimes translated Sabbath rest or Sabbath day. All of those are acceptable translations of the Greek word. We made a case for all of the words in this verse, food, drink, festivals, new moon. We made a case that those words are ceremonial. They refer to ritual customs. They are symbolic of Old Testament elements and ritual. And therefore, since the word Sabbath is in this list, we conclude that Sabbath here is in like manner ceremonial, ritual, and symbolic. In other words, by the law of consistency, the apostle is talking about a category of the same things with each word of this verse, and we've proved it with four out of the five. When we come to the fifth, there's no reason to think he's forgotten himself and changed his way of constructing his sentence. So, if food, drink, festivals, and new moon are ceremonial, ritual, symbolic, and impermanent, then the Sabbath is participating in that as well. The Sabbath of which he's speaking here is not permanent. The Sabbath of which he's speaking here is not lasting. The Sabbath of which he is speaking here is not eternal. It is ceremonial, it is ritual, it is symbolic. Well, that raises an issue, doesn't it? Where is Sabbath not temporary, ceremonial, or impermanent? Or is Sabbath ever temporary, ever not temporary, not ceremonial, not impermanent? Marge? That's okay. Well, we're talking about the Old Testament because the apostles thinking about Old Testament ritual and law. Every day is a Sabbath in a certain sense, isn't it? The moral law. In the moral law. Where do we find the moral law? We find it in the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> The Sabbath is not temporary, ceremonial, or important, impermanent in the fourth commandment of Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 to 15. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. There, in the fourth commandment, the Sabbath is moral, permanent, and lasting. It is moral, permanent, lasting, and perpetual. So our initial conclusion is that Paul here in Colossians 2.16 is not referring to the moral, perpetual Sabbath of the Ten Commandments, but to ceremonial, temporary, and ritual Sabbaths. Ceremonial, temporary, and ritual Sabbaths. Ben? In the 
translations the Sabbath is capitalized. Yes. Indicating that they're looking at the law. Yes. Yes. We have to determine whether that's the correct uh, process or not. But at this point, we're arguing that there is a distinction between a Sabbath moral, perpetual, and lasting. In fact, a Sabbath which is eternal, as Hebrew 4 indicates, the eternality of it would be reflected semi-eschatologically. That is, it would be a now-not-yet element of New Testament eschatology. So we're addressing this question of a distinction between that kind of Sabbath, which is contained and mandated by the fourth commandment, and ceremonial, ritual, and impermanent, not lasting Sabbath, which is what the apostle appears to be talking about here, as he placed Sabbath in the line of other words, which are clearly indicative of the impermanence and ceremonial uh, ritual, ceremonial symbolism of the Old Testament uh, Sabbaths. So there are Sabbaths and there are Sabbaths. There are moral Sabbaths and there are ceremonial Sabbaths. There are Sabbaths which are part of a moral code, namely the Ten Commandments, and there are Sabbaths which are part of a ceremonial code, namely the ceremonial and ritual law of the Old Testament. Well, where do we in fact find in the Old Testament these ceremonial Sabbaths? They're in fact present in a number of places. But let's take a look at three of them in particular, and they're all found in the book of Leviticus and in the 23rd chapter of Leviticus. So if you'll turn with me to Leviticus chapter 23. We'll begin by looking at one instance of the ceremonial Sabbath, verses 34 and 35, tied in with verse 39. Leviticus 23, 34, 35. Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth of this seventh month is the Feast of Booths, for seven days to the Lord. This is the feast of, what did we call it? Tabernacles. Tabernacles. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. All right now the key element here that I want you to notice is that phrase, you shall do no laborious work of any kind on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. You skip down to verse 39, then you will notice that on exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, because remember, Tabernacles is the Thanksgiving in-gathering celebration of the Jewish calendar, you shall feast, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now, in the original Hebrew and Greek translation, the word rest on the first day and rest on the eighth day is Sabbath rest. You shall sabotage on the first and on the eighth. All right, now notice that this could not have been the weekly Sabbath of the Old Testament seventh day. It couldn't have been consistently. That is, it's not impossible that the first and eighth day could have fallen at some time in their calendar 
on the weekly Sabbath, but it was not the ordinary pattern. In other words, these days would shift with the calendar. They would move like our days move from one year to another. They shift a little bit. It would be the same thing true here in the Feast of Tabernacles, namely the first and eighth day would not necessarily be the seventh day of the calendar week. They would be other than the seventh day. So there would still be a weekly Sabbath day on the basis of the fourth commandment, and there'd be two other Sabbath days on either side of it or outside of it, as the case may be. All right, this is an instance then in which associated with the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, there were two Sabbaths, that is two ceremonial or ritual Sabbaths, in which they were not to do any laborious work, which is also the premise of the fourth commandment, and they were to observe a Sabbath rest, which is the statement there in verse 39 of the first and the eighth day. All right, so here is an instance of a ritual celebration, ceremonial ritual, namely the Feast of Tabernacles, which is also attended with Sabbaths of its own, ritual or ceremonial Sabbaths, which go along with the ritual of the Feast of Tabernacles. If the Feast of Tabernacles ceases, then these ritual Sabbaths cease. Is that what the Apostle is describing? I think our, our evidence is leading us in that direction, that there may have been people coming into the Colossian church that were urging Christians to keep the Sabbaths of the Feast of Tabernacles when that time of the year came around. All right, now we'll pause and take our break, and we'll come back to revisit a couple of other illustrations of this ceremonial or ritual Sabbath, which is part of the Old Testament cultic law. But we're making a distinction, as we think the apostle is making a distinction, between that which is moral, namely the Sabbath of the tenth, fourth commandment, and that which is ceremonial, namely the Sabbath rest of the festival calendar. Now, for your information, I've written a book on this subject called The Market Day of the Soul. It's a copy up here that you can look at if you're interested in examining it. <clears throat> The title refers to the fact that the Sabbath day is the bread of life day and the water of life day to the soul of the believer. Until my treatment of the Sabbath is, as we're proceeding here, uh, reflected in more detail in that volume there. All right, now returning to the uh, ceremonial Sabbath of the Old Testament, Keeping our attention at chapter 23 of Leviticus, if you'll go back with your eye to the 24th verse, where Moses says, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest. And I point out again that the rest there is Sabbath rest. A reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. So the blowing of trumpets on the first day of the seventh month was one of these ceremonial or ritual Sabbaths, obviously symbolizing the trumpeting of God's own majesty with respect to his heavenly glory and to his appearance in choirs of angels, etc., both 
at the beginning at Mount Sinai and at the second coming of the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> but my point here is to note that the first day of the seventh month would not necessarily be the weekly Sabbath day. So the use of the term Sabbath here is referring to another day other than the weekly Sabbath day and is therefore of ceremonial, ritual, and impermanent stature or status. Now, the final example is in this 23rd chapter of Leviticus, looking also back to chapter 16. So you might want to get your finger back to chapter 16 so you can flip back there when we take a look at this verse. In the 27th verse of uh, chapter 23, God says, On exactly the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. How would you say that in Hebrew? Yom Kippur, correct. All right, now if you go back to chapter 16, on the day of atonement, or on Yom Kippur, which is the annual day in which the high priest goes behind the veil of the Holy of Holies and offers for the sins of Israel once a year. Back to chapter 16, verse verse 29, I'm sorry. This shall be a permanent statute for you in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month, which we've already indicated is a Sabbath day, or I'm sorry, the Yom Kippur. You shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns with you. And skipping now to verse 31, it is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. The tenth day of the seventh month, which is the day of observing Yom Kippur, is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest, you will notice, which means that it was not on the weekly Sabbath day. It may may have, in the course of the calendar coming around, it may have occurred on that weekly Sabbath, but it was normally not the same as the weekly Sabbath. It was a ceremonial Sabbath rest. All right, there are three instances here, all attached to festivals, which is also interesting that the language of the Apostle in Colossians 2 places this word Sabbath after the word new moon and festivals, keeping keeping that string or that line of argumentation harmoniously and synonymously. In other words, he's talking about the same kind of things, ceremonial ordinances and ritual ordinances, ordinances which have passed away in the fulfilling of those ceremonies and rituals by the finished work of Christ. So these ceremonial, temporary, and ritual Sabbaths have been canceled. That's what the apostle is saying here. Those ceremonial Sabbaths are not to be used as a way of judging you, They are part of the ceremonial calendar, and they are canceled and annulled with the coming and work of Christ. But does that mean the moral, weekly, and perpetual Sabbath of the fourth commandment is also canceled or abolished? No, it remains because it is untouched by the language of Colossians 2.16. The Sabbath of Colossians 2.16 is not the weekly, moral, or perpetual Sabbath of the fourth commandment of the Decalogue. That Sabbath remains. That commandment remains. 
that commandment remains as the other nine commandments of that Decalogue remain. None of you believe that the commandment to have no other gods but me is circumstantial, ceremonial, or impermanent. You all believe that the first commandment is moral, perpetual, and everlasting. You you do not believe that the commandment thou shalt not commit adultery is temporary and ceremonial. You believe that the commandment thou shalt not commit adultery, the seventh commandment, is perpetual, lasting, and permanent. You do not believe that the sixth commandment thou shalt not murder is ceremonial, ritual, or impermanent, temporary. You believe that thou shalt not murder is a permanent, moral, and perpetual mandate of Almighty God. Then when you come to the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment is not impermanent, ceremonial, or ritual. It has the quality of everything else in that list of ten commandments. It is as moral, perpetual, and eternal as God himself. It does not pass away, nor do its requirements pass away. It contains the same morality that the seventh commandment contains, contains the same morality that the sixth commandment contains, contains the same morality that the first commandment contains. It contains the morality of all ten, the other nine, I should say, of these ten commandments. It is not somehow a ceremonial commandment in the midst of nine other moral commandments. It is a moral commandment in the midst of nine other moral commandments. It is as morally binding as thou shalt have no other gods before me. It is as morally binding as thou shalt not kill. It is as morally binding as thou shalt not commit adultery. It is no less moral than those other commandments are moral. The morality, then, of the fourth commandment, Sabbath, is to be distinguished from the ceremoniality of the Old Testament cultic or ritual or ceremonial Sabbath, which we've already pointed out in three instances in the book of Leviticus. Now, one other thing to notice here. We've already alluded to the fact that the festival or ceremonial Sabbath, that is, these ritual or cultic Sabbaths, shift on their days according to the Old Testament calendar. Because the days of the Old Testament year would slide a little bit even as our days slide. Theirs would slide a little more, but they still slid. Okay, The weekly or moral Sabbath day, that is the Sabbath day of the fourth commandment, is always the same one in seven day. The same one in seven day. Now here you will notice that I'm making a very fine distinction. The fourth commandment does not read, remember the Saturday to keep it holy. The fourth commandment reads, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, how did the Old Testament Jews know what day was to be kept holy? What particularly one day in seven was to be observed as a Sabbath day? They knew from God's revelation Outside of his revelation of the commandment, he revealed what particular day he wanted the moral Sabbath to be observed. How did they know? 
Turn with me to Exodus chapter 16. Now you will notice that this is a discussion of the observance of the Sabbath, meaning the moral one day and seven Sabbath, which God commanded in the fourth in the fourth commandment of the Decalogue. And here you will notice in verse 22 and in verse 24 on the sixth day, that is the sixth day of their week, they were to gather twice as much bread or manna. Verse 24, they were to put aside until morning, as Moses had ordered. And not, and it would not become foul, nor was any worm in it. But they were not to go out on the seventh day and gather the manna that God provided. On the sixth day, they received twice as much. The day after the sixth day in which they got twice as much manna was to be the weekly Sabbath. That was to be the day in which they didn't go out and gather up manna. That was the day in which they were not to do their ordinary work, labor, etc., so that's how we come up with the traditional Jewish Saturday Sabbath. It comes from this revelation in Exodus 16, where the day before, that, which was Friday, the day before they got twice as much manna. Therefore, they knew what day was to be their weekly Sabbath day. It was the day after the double portion. It was Saturday after Friday, as we now label those days of the week. Well, which particular one day in seven under the New Testament is observed? Well, as you look at the New Testament passages which have to do with the New Testament Sabbath, you will find that they are all describing what is happening on the first day of the week. So whether it's the first day of the week, namely Sunday, or whether it's the seventh day of the week, namely Saturday, the commandment is satisfied in one in seven, being set apart as a moral obligation to the Lord. It satisfies the pattern of what a Sabbath is. A Sabbath is a one in seven. It's not necessarily the seventh. So you can't argue that the Saturday is a perpetual commandment because the Seventh-day Adventists misinterpret the fourth commandment and read Saturday into the word Sabbath in that passage. That's not what it says. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day. It's a one in seven pattern. One in seven with respect to the Old Testament Jews at Sinai and later was Saturday. One in seven with respect to New Testament Christians is a redemptive historical shift, namely Sunday. Why? Why Sunday and not Saturday? Because of Jesus' resurrection. Because the one in seven day now begins the week as we begin in the power of the risen Christ in our worship. We're not looking, as in the Old Testament, to the end of the week to the fact that a Sabbath rest is coming. We begin in the Sabbath rest. Yes, there is a future eschatological Sabbath. There remains a Sabbath to the spirits of the blessed. That's Hebrews 4. He wouldn't be talking about that unless there was a weekly Sabbath, incidentally. But the pattern here, then, is 
that the particular day is incidental to the pattern one and seven, God will have to determine that by another extra extra revelation. He does so in Exodus 16. He does so in John 20. He does so in Acts 20. He does so in 1 Corinthians 16. He does so in Revelation 1, where the Apostle John calls the day the Lord's day. I was on the Lord. I was in the Lord's day in the spirit. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Sorry. Okay, so the pattern here is that Sunday for the New Testament satisfies the one in seven pattern of the fourth commandment. Saturday for the Old Testament Jew satisfies the pattern of the one in seven pattern of the fourth commandment. Therefore, as we return to Paul's language here, he is not talking about the one in seven Lord's Day Sabbath, nor is he talking about the one in seven Saturday Sabbath. He is talking about the ceremonial ritual Sabbath, which we have identified through the passages in Leviticus 23. And in fact, there are other passages in the Pentateuch which also talk about these patterns. There's a ceremonial language. It is language of those things which were intended to be fulfilled and pass away. The Sabbath is not fulfilled and passed away. The Sabbath remains as a moral commandment even as thou shalt not commit adultery, remains as a moral commandment. The same moral binding, the same moral importance, the same moral quality applies to the fourth commandment as applies to the sixth, the seventh, the first, the third, the fourth, all ten of them. Your argument cannot consistently argue that the fourth commandment is moral or ceremonial, In fact, the only way you can get rid of the morality of the fourth commandment is get it out of the Decalogue and say that it's ceremonial and no longer applies. And that, of course, breaks the pattern of what the Ten Commandments are. You're being inconsistent. You're not thinking carefully about the pattern of what is there in those ten words, those ten commandments. So in conclusion... There are ceremonial temporary Sabbaths in the Old Testament ritual law. There is a moral perpetual Sabbath in the Old Testament moral law, namely in the Ten Commandments. The Apostle Paul is not annulling the latter. That is the fourth commandment, the fourth commandment Sabbath in Colossians 2.16, but recognizing that the former, that is the cultic and ceremonial Sabbaths have been fulfilled and thus have no longer any force as verse 17 completes. You do not need to agree with how I have interpreted the passage, but the burden of proof is upon you to prove it incorrect. And if it is not incorrect, then it has implications for your piety. The fourth commandment still remains a defining element of your piety as a Christian, or it should, because Jesus has said to you, if you love me, keep my commandments. Oh, I'll keep all nine of them, Lord. But I get to do what I want on the Sabbath day. I don't think that's a proper approach to the fourth commandment. 
I don't think that's a proper approach to the way the Lord himself has judged the breaking and desecration of his Sabbath. Remember, it was one of the reasons that Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C. It was one of the contributing arguments that the, the prophets used to point out that Israel was disobedient to the law of God. So, if the fourth commandment is part of a moral code, and most all Christians like to brag about the fact that they keep the moral code of the Bible, and when you ask them, where is that moral code? They reply with Judge Roy Moore of Alabama in the Ten Commandments. And then all of a sudden, we find that the Sabbath commandment is treated differently. Why? What consistency is? Where, where is the consistency in such treatment of the Sabbath day? Where is it? Except in your own self-indulgence, in your own pleasure, not doing the Lord's will, Isaiah 58, but doing my will. And if you do, I will cause you to ride upon the high places of the earth. Jonathan Edwards points out Isaiah 58 is talking about the New Testament Sabbath. He's not talking about the Old Testament Sabbath. Talk about the New Testament Sabbath. Yes, now Randy, you've had your hand up and I've ignored you until I was done with my spiel. I'm used to it. <laughs> how, how, how can I respond to you? The women in your family ever cook their meals on Saturday so they didn't have to cook on Sunday? No, they don't. The works of necessity, preparation of food, is exactly what Jesus was doing on the Sabbath day. Manna did not, the, the pattern of not picking up any, not preparing food on the Saturday Sabbath did not extend beyond the time in the wilderness. The time of the wilderness was over. The manna was over. They went back to ordinary networks of necessity. And as Jesus does in picking the grain on the Sabbath day and feeding his disciples, he shows that the works of necessity, namely food preparation and eating, are perfectly legitimate on the Sabbath day. There are three... Pardon? Filling your gas tank, feeding your donkey. Pardon? Filling your gas tank, feeding your donkey. Feeding your donkey, feeding your gas tank is not necessary unless it's an emergency. You have plenty of time to fill your gas tank and have adequate gas to get back and forth to church. Okay, I was wondering how you worked out that difference. Thank you. Yeah, we'll make the distinction between what is necessary and what is not necessary. Okay. The other types of things that Jesus does, and Jesus is the best example for the types of things to do on the Sabbath day, works of necessity, feeding his disciples is the example in his own career, Works of worship, Luke 4, he goes up to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He never missed on the Sabbath day. He was there. So works of worship are proper on the Sabbath day. And finally, works of mercy. He healed on the Sabbath day. In fact, that's one of the reasons they killed him, because he healed on the Sabbath day. He was merciful to those that were sick. So all of those are appropriate to the Sabbath day. There's plenty of that to do. Besides the fact that some of us old people need a rest physically on the Sabbath day, and that's certainly 
appropriate to a day of rest. Marge? Um, you mentioned the, um, that God revealed the Monday and seven through the giving of the manna. Does the day of rest after create the days of creation have anything to do with the Sabbath? Only the pattern of one and seven. On the seventh day he rested. But you can't prove that he began to create on Monday and so rested on Saturday, etc. In other words, you're reading you're reading that back onto it. You don't we don't know what day of the week he started to create on. But in the case of the manna, we know that it was on a Saturday. We know it was on the Saturday because it's the day after the double portion. You read that Exodus sixteen text, and so that's how they knew they weren't going to get any manna that day, see? So there was going to be no manna so that they could rest from their labors. And what they gathered the previous day twice, it would last. It wouldn't rot or go foul. Reba? So did Jesus go on, on, on um, the Sabbath at night? I, I just, for morning worship and evening worship. <clears throat> uh, now, my personal opinion is there's no mandate for morning and evening worship. That is a tradition. Morning worship is obviously required, or one worship service is obviously required. It's interesting that the morning and evening worship tradition stems from the morning and evening sacrifice tradition of the cultic calendar of the Jewish, Jewish law. That renders it suspect, in my opinion, but nonetheless, as a tradition, and it's, if it's edifying, it's certainly, it's certainly appropriate. There's no problem with it if the people want to have it and observe it, etc. But don't mandate it. Don't require that people be in church twice. I don't think you can prove that from the scriptures and you shouldn't bind consciences on the matter. Go ahead, Ben. Well, I, I, would have a, I would have a problem as what you just said, that it's not mandated, because it goes contrary to what a Christian is. If you've been given one day to worship and the church deems it, the elders and the pastor deem it uh, necessary and profitable for the congregation to gather, then, then they do gather, and the minister prepares himself to preach God's word, then I think it is an affront to God if you decide not to come. I think that, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a respectable justification for it. Though I don't agree with it, but nonetheless, it's a respectable justification for it. Any other questions or comments? Yes, Kay? Is the word the Lord's day in the... In the New Testament? It is in Revelation 1.10. Oh, yeah. The Lord's Day. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. So that's His Day. Okay. Yes. And in the other instances, that it's mentioned as the first day. So why did they choose the first day? Well, they chose the first day in memory of Christ's resurrection. stand by night in the house of the Lord. I guess that's just the priests. Or... Well, the priest or any worshiper who would come into the temple at that time, it doesn't necessarily mean there was some kind of official service. Right. Not necessarily. Right. Temple, was a, temple was a place of meditation as well as expiation. It's in that song 400 that we sing it usually at night. So... That's why it came into my brain. Anyway. Singing of the Psalms is good. As long as you don't mandate exclusivity. I'm not making any mandates. I'm just asking questions. 
Okay, well, we'll move on to verse 17 next time and uh, proceed with the rest of the chapter subsequent to that. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the blessing of your word and for the words of the Apostle here, which precisely set apart the weekly Sabbath of the Fourth Commandment from the ceremonial Sabbath of the cultic law of the Old Testament. Thank you, O Lord, for the privilege of the Sabbath day and for the delight that rings in our hearts through worship and praise, through reading and thinking, through instruction and catechizing. We bless you, O Lord, that these are things that are appropriate to that day and edifying to the believer. O Lord, we ask you to help us to walk in the liberty with which Christ has set us free. Set us free from the bondage of traditions of men and the Old Testament ritual practices because he's the consummation and the Lord of the Sabbath forever. We bless his name and we thank you for his day. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.